Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 23rd. I'm Dagna, your reader today. We'll start with the five-day forecast for the Siouxland area, and today will be cloudy with patchy fog uh, with a high of 35 and a low of 32. Wednesday will be also mostly cloudy with a high of 35 and a low of 32. And basically the same for Thursday, mostly cloudy with a high of 35 and a low of 30. Um, and Friday, pretty much the same thing, 35 as a high and the low as 26. And Saturday, a high of 35 and a low of 20. Today's mini editorial is written by Jerry J. Cobbs of Sergeant Bluff. And Jerry writes, P.T. Barnum once said, there is a fool born every minute. I did not realize that they all lived in Iowa until I saw the results of the Iowa caucus. Again, this was written by Jerry J. Cobbs of Sergeant Bluff. Our first front page article today is um, concerns the city council. Warming Shelter asks city council for funds. The executive director of the Warming Shelter asked the Sioux City Council Monday to consider allocating funding to the only emergency, emergency shelter in the city in the next budget year. If I am unable to secure additional funding, the closure of our shelter will become a harsh reality, Shayla Moore told the council. We are the only low-barrier homeless shelter in the community. There is no other organization that is serving this population. The warming shelter, which has operated for roughly 11 years, does not accept any state or federal funding. The shelter has relied solely on community donations, as it doesn't turn anyone seeking shelter away. If the shelter were forced to close, more said those experiencing homelessness would likely seek out unsafe places for refuge, be at heightened risk of exposure to criminal activities, and be more susceptible to exploitation and violence. She said, additionally, frigid temperatures as we have experienced in the last few weeks will result in harm and death for those unsheltered. Speaking from an economic standpoint, closing the warming shelter could have incredible consequences to the economic well-being of our city. Moore said local budgets will be strained by increases in emergency services, health care, and law enforcement responding to individuals experiencing homelessness. I would predict that this would affect the downtown Sioux City specifically. Law enforcement will experience heightened demands as they respond to issues related to public safety, survival behaviors, and potential conflicts arising from individuals seeking shelter. Moore noted the city councils of Sioux Falls and Omaha have allocated funds to support the operations of shelters in those cities. Mayor Bob Scott asked Moore how much those city budgets and how much those cities budget annually for shelters. Moore responded that Sioux Falls allocates $125,000 while Omaha contributes $500,000. I would suggest that the city contribute at least enough for us to ensure that we're able to operate during the winter months. Our monthly budget at the warming shelter is around $70,000 and that is with us recently eliminating night patrol, which is our on-site security, she said. 
Scott asked, how many months are you suggesting? Moore responded six months out of the year, but added that the warming shelter hopes to continue operations in the summer months for incredibly vulnerable populations, such as families with young children, the disabled, and elderly. Last June, Joe Twidwell, a board president of the warming shelter, informed the council that the emergency shelter would be restricting its services to certain populations during the summer of 2023 due to a lack of funding. Traditionally, the shelter, 916 Nebraska Street, had been open 24-7 from November 1st until April 30th. During the summer, the shelter had limited hours for people to get mail, do their laundry, and shower. But in 2022, the shelter's board voted to keep the shelter open 365 days a year. That plan was stymied by monetary constraints. On July 9th, the shelter, which had been averaging about 100 people a night, restricted services to families and those who are disabled and use wheelchairs and walkers. While the number of people experiencing homelessness has remained steady, Moore said they are seeing an increase in those who are extremely vulnerable. Currently, she said 130 to 150 people are being housed at the warming shelter per night. Most individuals include the elderly, disabled, and families with children facing homelessness in our community, she said. Our next article is headlined, Local Homicide Spike. A little more than a year ago, Sioux City Police were summoned to a Nebraska Street home for what turned out to be a homicide resulting in a murder investigation. Little did they know that January 14th call would be repeated several times in 2023 a year in which Sioux City saw one of the highest numbers of homicides in its history. The city had seven homicides, just short of a high of eight from 2020, according to FBI statistics, after having three in 2021 and one in 2022. The spike is concerning because most of them involved guns, but Sioux City Police Chief Rex Mueller said it's hard to say what caused the increase because homicides are often spur-of-the-moment incidents. None of the city's homicides in the past year were linked to one another. The overwhelming majority of homicides involve people who know each other, Mueller said. A lot of these are just evolved in an instant because of a disturbance. Add in an eighth incident in which Sioux City Police determined a fatal shooting was self-defense, plus two fatal shootings outside the city in rural Woodbury County and another fatal stabbing across the South Dakota border in Dakota Dunes, and area law enforcement agencies responded to an unusually high number of deadly crimes in 2023. We will never be able to truly put a statistics as to why the numbers are higher, Mueller said. Homicides, like other violent crimes, ebb and flow, the chief said, and preliminary 2023 Sioux City Police Department crime statistics back that up. According to city and FBI crime stats, Sioux City saw three homicides in 2019, eight in 2020, three in 2021, one in 2022 before the jump this year, past year. Numbers for other violent crimes, such as rape, robbery, aggravated assault, and kidnapping also bounced up and down from 2019 to 2023. This past year saw an increase in robberies and aggravated assaults, but rape and kidnapping decreased. What I see when I look at these numbers is a relatively steady crime rate, Mueller said. We do look at these numbers and talk about what we can do differently. 
Mueller said police can speculate about violent crime causes such as unmet mental health needs, drug and alcohol use, or economic conditions. There are a lot of factors that impact crime, Mueller said. We do see a fair amount of firearms. Officers will tell you they are seeing and locating more firearms. That increase in firearms has been noticed by prosecutors as well. Woodbury County Attorney James Loomis said he, too, can't explain the 2023 spike in homicides, but he's noticed more cases crossing his desk that involve guns. Loomis said, you keep having the gun violence and you're bound to have homicides, and that's what we've seen. Loomis says his office works with police to identify individuals with histories of violent, gun-related crimes such as willful injury, attempted murder, and intimidation with a dangerous weapon and aggressively prosecute them, aiming for longer prison sentences that will keep the dangerous people off the street. Mueller said police identify people with violent criminal histories and share their information with all officers. If any of those individuals are arrested, police may through deeper investigation, charge them with more serious crimes. If firearms are involved, it can also enhance charges, leading to longer prison sentences if convicted. It is a proactive rather than a reactive strategy, he said, that hopefully puts people prone to violence in custody before they can harm or kill someone. We will never know how many homicides we prevent, Mueller said. But because of the random nature of homicides, it's hard to predict who may be more likely to commit a fatal act and ultimately prevent them. Not all of the suspects charged in the 2023 homicides had violent criminal backgrounds. Despite the jump in homicides, Mueller said he believes Sioux City is a safe community, as indicated by community surveys in which a majority of the respondents say they feel safe here. In the meantime, Mueller said, his department will continue to do what it can to make sure last year's homicide spike was a one-year event and not the beginning of a trend. We are constantly looking at training and technology that will help us better do our jobs, he said. We're always going to work for more positive numbers. Our next headline is Governor, Attorney General Speak at an Anti-Abortion Rally. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and Republican Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd on Monday reaffirmed their commitment to defend Iowa's halted law that bans abortions early in pregnancy. The pair spoke during an anti-abortion rally at the Iowa State Capitol on the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision overturned by the court in June 2022 that provided a federally protected right to abortion. Lawmakers last year passed, and Reynolds signed into law House File 732, which remains tied up in court during a rare special session of the legislature. It would change the amount of time women have to seek an abortion from 20 weeks post-fertilization to as little as six weeks before many women know that they are pregnant. The legislation prohibits abortions after cardiac activity is detected in an embryo. It includes exceptions for rape and incense and medical emergencies. A Polk County District Court judge granted a request from Iowa abortion providers to halt enforcement of the new restrictions until its constitutionality can be considered by the courts. Reynolds and Byrd have asked the state Supreme Court to allow the new law to go into effect. It truly was an act of courage and conviction that will ultimately save precious lives, the governor said of passing bills in 2018 and again last year that would ban nearly all abortions. As we continue to fight in the courts, I want 
to thank you for putting Iowa firmly on the side of life. Since both the U.S. and the Iowa Supreme Courts overturned the right to an abortion, Reynolds said, the abortion industry and its allies have sunk to new lows in their attacks on the unborn. In this environment, there are those who say that the pro-life movement should back down, the governor continued. They say that standing unapologetically for life is too risky or it costs too much. My response is simple. I will never back down from protecting the innocent and the unborn. Reynolds said the work of building a robust culture of life that supports new and expecting mothers continues this session. She mentioned her proposal to increase the coverage of postpartum care for new moms under Medicaid from two months to 12 months. Iowa is one of only a handful of states that has not implemented the extension, which was made available to states in the America Rescue Plan Act. To accomplish this, Reynolds' office said she would propose changing the eligibility for Medicaid coverage of birth and postpartum care to 215% of the federal poverty line from 375% under current law. While the benefits would be extended, fewer would qualify, keeping Medicaid costs for pregnancy and postpartum care neutral. Reynolds, in her Condition of the State address earlier this month, also proposed a program to connect Iowans in need with faith-based organizations and the private sector and steer them away from government assistance. Bird said all life has value and must be protected. As a mom, as a pro-life woman, she said she is thankful to get to defend our heartbeat law before the Iowa Supreme Court. We know that we're going to be successful, the Iowa Attorney General told the crowd gathered in the Capitol Rotunda for the annual Iowa Rally for Life. We just have to keep working and never give up. We're never going to give up when it uh, comes to doing the right thing. Bird said all legal briefs from supporters and opponents of Iowa's abortion ban are due to be filed with the Iowa Supreme Court by the end of this month. She said she anticipates the court will hear oral arguments this spring and the ruling is likely by the end of June. Planned Parenthood reports spike in people traveling to Iowa for care. Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart in a statement said the U.S. Supreme Court's decision that overturned Roe v. Wade is a stark reminder of just how important it is to vote in every election. Hart said Iowa Democrats stand with the majority of Iowans who want to secure our fundamental freedoms by safeguarding the right to choose. We all must continue our work to ensure that Iowa women have access to the reproductive health care they need and put people over politics by protecting those critical rights we'd all held for 50 years before Dobbs, Hart said. Should the court uphold Iowa's six-week abortion ban, Iowa Democrats said it would force Iowans to travel to neighboring states like Illinois and Minnesota to receive life-saving reproductive health care. Planned Parenthood North Central States said it has seen a nearly 100% increase in patients traveling from outside its five-state region to get an abortion, including an increase in patients coming from states like Texas, Florida, Missouri, which passed laws making abortion illegal in nearly all or most cases. And in states that have banned abortion, maternal and infant mortality are on the rise, sexually transmitted infection rates are climbing, and health care deserts are growing, said Ruth Richardson, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood North Central States. It operates health centers and provides abortion care in Iowa, Minnesota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and North Dakota. Everyone has a right to health care, and your zip code should not dictate the care you can access. Dr. Sarah Traxler, Chief Medical Officer 
advisor at Planned Parenthood North Central States said in a statement, Some patients have to travel hundreds of miles. They deserve to access abortion care in their own communities. Sac City woman pleads not guilty of attempted murder. A Sac City woman has pleaded not guilty of stabbing her boyfriend. Karina Evans, 61, entered her written plea in Sac County District Court to charges of attempted murder, domestic abuse assault causing bodily injury, and willful injury resulting in bodily injury. According to court documents, Evans threatened to kill her long-term boyfriend, Raul Anderson, and herself, then stabbed Anderson in the elbow with a black-handled folding knife on October 22nd at a house in the 600 block of Leonard Street in Sac City. Police responding to the call found Anderson outside the house yelling, and he was taken to the hospital for treatment. During an interview with police, Evans admitted stabbing Anderson, but said it was not on purpose, court documents said. She told investigators Anderson had rushed her while she was holding the knife and was threatening to kill herself. Ex-Mercy One nurse gets prisoned for fentanyl child porn. A former nurse at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center in Sioux City has been sentenced to more than 10 years in federal federal prison for trying to illegally obtain fentanyl and other drugs and also for possession of child pornography. Douglas Kelly, 67, of Sioux City, had pleaded guilty in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to possession of child pornography and conspiracy to acquire controlled substances by fraud. He was sentenced Thursday to 126 months in prison. He also was fined $1,200 and must serve five years on supervised release after his release from prison. There is no parole in the federal system. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Kelly conspired with two other men to use his position as a nurse at the hospital to obtain fentanyl and other controlled substances for personal use and to sell to others. During the investigation, law enforcement officers executed a search warrant on Kelly's phone and found six videos and 20 images of child pornography. He was previously convicted of child porn-related offenses in 1993 in Buena Vista County, Iowa. Kenneth Hurd, 32, of Harrisburg, South Dakota, was sentenced January 3rd to two years probation for conspiracy to acquire controlled substances by fraud. Brian Raff, 44, of Orchard, Nebraska, has pleaded guilty to conspiracy to con distribute a controlled substance and await sentencing. Yankton Man Pleads Guilty of Manslaughter a Yankton man has pleaded guilty of first-degree manslaughter for a fatal stabbing that occurred in May. Adrian Lund, 32, entered his plea Friday in Yankton County Circuit Court. As part of a plea agreement, prosecutors will recommend Lund receive an 85-year prison sentence at sentencing, which was scheduled for February 16th. Lund is charged with stabbing timber Cornoy at a Yankton home on May 22nd. She died the next day in a Sioux Falls hospital. Winsner, Nebraska man faces murder charge in Wayne County. Wayne, Nebraska. A rural Wisner, Nebraska man charged with fatally shooting his father was bound over to district court Monday to face murder and other charges. Carl Ruskamp, 31, waived his right to a preliminary hearing in Wayne County Court and was bound over to District Court, where he is scheduled for a February 7th arraignment on charges of first-degree murder, use of a deadly weapon to commit a felony, and possession of a deadly weapon by a felon. Judge Ross Stouffer ordered Ruskamp's bond to remain at $1 million. 
Ruskamp is charged with the September 7, 2022 shooting death of Gerald Ruskamp, 65, at a rural Wayne County home. The Wayne County Sheriff's Office was called to a home in the 300 block of Y Road in rural Wayne County on September 7, 2022, and found Gerald Ruskamp, 65, with a gunshot wound to the back of his head. He was pronounced dead at a local hospital. According to court documents, Carl Ruskamp told deputies he was outside when he heard a shot and then saw someone run from the house. Ruskamp said when he entered the house, he found Gerald Ruskamp with a gunshot wound. During their investigation, authorities found a twenty-two caliber rifle in the closet, twenty-two caliber ammunition in Carl Ruskamp's bedroom, and two empty shell casings. Dwayne Ruskamp, who also lived at the house, said he had been outside and did not hear a gunshot or see anyone run from the house. According to court documents, he told investigators Carl and Gerald Ruskamp had been arguing earlier that day and he had heard Carl Ruskamp talking on the phone or to himself, saying something like, kill Jer. Authorities who searched Carl Ruskamp's phone found a threatening text message he had sent to Gerald Ruskamp. His Google search history also included items such as bulletin brain. Tests showed the shell casings were fired by the rifle seized from the house, and blood on the shirt Carl Ruskamp was wearing at the time of his arrest matched his father's DNA. While investigating the shooting, authorities found a marijuana growing operation on the property. Carl Ruskamp has pleaded not guilty of manufacturing a controlled substance and awaits trial. Duane Westcamp, 65, pleaded no contest to possession of less than one pound of marijuana and was fined $300. Well, now move to the regular column, Five Questions With, and this week it is with Dorothy Peacock Nature Center's Teresa Cruad. Winter, especially much of January this year, is a time most people choose to stay indoors, experiencing nature only by looking out their windows. For those who like to brave the cold and the snow, there are often options to learn more about our surroundings at the Dorothy Peacock Nature Center. There are even indoor activities and bird watching through the large windows for those who don't want to spend much time outside. We still offer a variety of programs for people of all ages, Teresa Cruedd, the center's education director, said of winter activities at the Nature Center. I think some people are surprised, but others enjoy the winter weather, so they like that we are open. As one would expect, the number of visitors goes down during the winter, but 960 people took advantage of mild weather to visit in December. Center staff do not see the large number of school field trips, but Cruid and others take the learning to the schools, packing up furs, feathers, and the center's live reptiles and owls in visiting area classrooms. The quieter winter months give staff members more time to begin planning spring and summer programs and begin preparations to hire temporary summer help. The slower time is appreciated, Cruid said, providing a calmer atmosphere without the hustle and bustle of field trips and other activities. It also allows staff members to get a little closer to nature themselves. For the most part, we like it because it's peaceful and quiet, she said. Going outside here in the winter is renewing. And now um, the journal spoke with Cruid about winter at the Nature Center. First question, what kinds of things can people do at the Nature Center during the winter that they cannot do at other times of the year? And the answer is snow 
I'm sorry, snowshoeing. That would be a big one. Snowshoes are available for rent as long as there are, is at least four inches of snow on the ground, and the Nature Center will periodically have pop-up programs pertaining to the activity, depending on the weather. Bird watching is, a, is another popular activity this time of the year because you can do that from indoors with the bird feeders out here. Next question, what annual winter activities or programs are popular? We have a new series once a month, Coffee and Conversation, the third Wednesday of the month. The Nature Center also offers regular programming, including a January 27th event with the Les Hills Wild Ones to show people how to sow native seeds in mini containers to grow outdoors in the cold. Next question, how much access is there to the trails during the winter? The trails are open all year. You just have to be careful this time of the year because of the ice on the steps. Trails are not cleared of snow, but visitors can snowshoe on them, and hikers also use them if there's not too much snow. What is the atmosphere like out there now that there's snow all over? Is it pretty quiet out there, or do you see a lot of wildlife? It's kind of calming, peaceful. It is a good time of the year to catch up and work on things we couldn't get done during the busy season. We do see quite a bit of wildlife. We see a lot of turkeys and we'll see a lot of deer and a lot of songbirds. Are there kinds of wildlife more prevalent this time of the year visitors can get a good look at? The only thing I can really think of is possibly bald eagles along the river coming into the center that will come over and you'll see them there. Turkey and deer will often come closer to the nature center because of the bird feeders. You've just got to catch them at the right time. We now move to another snow-related story, and this one is snowplow drivers did not have an easy time either. Before the weather moderated this week, it was a whirlwind 12 days for Siouxland snowplow drivers as they battled more than a foot of heavy, wet snow, frigid temperatures, and gusty winter winds. Charlie Irwin, the owner of Lines and Stripes LLC in Sioux City, said he's never seen a winter like this one in his more than 20 years in business. He said, we basically do commercial properties and that was pretty brutal between the cold weather, the shovelers, the machines breaking down, and then just the snow. You'd get it all done and then it would blow right back in. Plows were breaking because it was so cold. It was brutal and it's still going today because we couldn't get them all the way cleaned up. Brian, who declined to provide his last name, works for Snow Doctors in Sioux City. He said you just need to keep going in weather conditions like this. Brian said we're going 24-7 the last three days, four days straight. He's been in the business 30 years in, uh, in March. He recalls two other storms packing a punch like this last one that barreled into Siouxland. We just buckle down and get through it. You go home and take an hour nap and then go right back at it. About 12 inches of snow blanketed Siouxland beginning Monday, January 8th and running into Tuesday, January 9th. Sioux City Bear Bob Scott declared a snow emergency on January 8th. A snow emergency declaration prohibits parking or leaving a vehicle unattended on an emergency snow route street, noted by a blue and white sign with a snowflake. All area schools announced they would be closed due to the weather. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley was scheduled to be in Sioux City for an event at Horizon Family Restaurant, but it was canceled. Then another band of snow went through Thursday, January 11th, dropping several more inches of snow on the area and temperatures plummeted. The National Weather Service forecasted negative degree weather starting Thursday night and continuing into Tuesday, January 16th. 
Wind chills fell to minus 19 degrees with wind gusts as high as 25 miles an hour, according to the National Weather Service. Irwin said it's hard on the machines and it's hard on the people. You can only handle so much. We've been pushing since January 8th and we have not stopped. One bright note for local businesses in the snow business, this is the first winter in a while where Siouxland has received significant amount of snow. Yes, it's been good for business, but on the flip side, everything breaks and you struggle to get people to get out and help when you run into the ground 24-7. Ron Gleiser is the Highway Maintenance Supervisor for the Iowa Department of Transportation in Siouxland. The DOT is responsible for plowing and maintaining state highways. Glazer said, We've been on 12-hour shifts since Monday night, January 8th. We started 12-hour shifts that day, and that carried up until Sunday, January 15th. He oversees two garages in Sioux City, one in Leeds and one on Hamilton Boulevard, and another garage in Sloan. The DOT runs seven people per shift at the two Sioux City garages and three people during the day and two at night out of Sloan. Three Last weekend, when we had those high winds, visibility was really bad. We are out here in some of the traffic. They don't get the concept of slowing down. They spin out and they crash, and then that's a hazard for other motorists, Glazer said. I've been doing this for about 37 years, and I've got a lot of winters under my belt. When it got really, really cold, we had to switch from our normal application of straight salt to a sand and salt calcium mixture. We just tried to give them some grit with that sand. The cold is causing equipment problems for the DOT, too. We have a lot of older trucks which are constantly breaking down. We try to get them fixed as quickly as we can, but you have to do a lot of jockeying. I have a spare truck in each shop. Once one goes down, that spare gets activated, and we try to get the other one fixed as soon as we can. Sometimes we have more than one breakdown. Glazer especially wanted to appeal to drivers to take it easy in winter conditions. It's not rocket science. We are not splitting the atom. You need to slow down. That's our biggest problem, Glazer said. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 23rd on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now go to today's obituaries. Peter Lawrence Stoll, age 84 of Alton, passed away on Thursday, January 18th at the Prairie Ridge Care Center in Orange City. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 23rd at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Alton with Reverend Daniel Grieving officiating. Reverend Mark Stoll concelebrating and Deacon Dan Goble assisting. Burial will follow at St. Mary Cemetery in Alton. Visitation with family present will be from 4 to 6.30 p.m. on Monday. There will be a, a vigil prayer service at 5 p.m. followed by a rosary, all at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Alton. Visitation will resume from 9.30 to 10.15 on Tuesday at the church. Pete was born on May 26, 1939 to Louis and Petronella Beckman Stoll of Hospers, Iowa. He was raised in Hospers and attended St. Mary's Academy in Alton, graduating in 1957. On Valentine's Day, February 14, 1961, he married his high school sweetheart, Betty, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Alton. They lived at Hospers for two and a half years and then moved to a farm east of Alton where they remained until they moved into Alton in 2006. Peter loved nothing more than farming with his sons and grandson until his stroke in 2015. 
He was a member of St. Mary's Catholic Church, member of the choir for many years, as well as being a Eucharist minister. He was on the St. Mary's Church Board and a member of the Catholic Order of Foresters. He enjoyed many vacations with family and friends, especially to Branson, Lake Okoboji, and Hawaii. His hobbies included going to old-time dances, plays, collecting John Deere precision models, and attending sporting events for his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. Pete and Betty played golf, went bowling, and loved to play cards. John J. Mullen, 73, of Dakota City, passed away Thursday, January 18th. Services will be held at 1 p.m. on Friday, January 26th at Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home in South Sioux City with Reverend Patty Meyer officiating. Interment will follow at Dakota City Cemetery. Visitation with the family present will be one hour prior to the service. Fellowship and refreshments after graveside services will be at the Dakota City Fire Hall. John was born on July 30, 1950, in Sioux City to Albert and Doris Gales Mullen. He attended Helan High School. On October 6, 1973, he was united in marriage to Pamela Thieler in Elk Point, South Dakota, next to a Coke machine. These two best friends built a life together and moved to Dakota City in 1975. Anyone who spent time with John and Pam in their home became part of the family. Before retirement, John was employed with Old Home Bakery for many years and later went on to become a business agent for the Baker's Union. John enjoyed fishing, hunting, playing cards with family and friends, going to the casino, watching Nebraska football, and most of all, spending time with his grandkids, who will always be Papa's babies. Heartfelt thanks go out to all that were a part of John's life over the years. He was always surrounded by cherished family and friends, including the neighborhood family in Dakota City. Thomas Bouvet, 73, of Sioux City, passed away on Thursday, January 18th, at a local retirement home. Services will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday, January 24th at First United Methodist Church with Reverend Roger Madden officiating. Visitation with the family will be one hour prior at the church. A private family burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery at a later date. Arrangements are under the direction of Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel. Thomas was born on March 9, 1950 in Watertown, South Dakota the son of Floyd and Phyllis. He attended grade school through one and a half years of high school on the Black Hills Army Depot in Igloo in the southwest corner of South Dakota. After his family moved to California, Tom graduated from Yuba City High School and from California State College at Hayward, active in cross-country and running marathons. After college, Tom moved to Sioux City, where he edited the newsletters for the Siouxland Ski Club, Woodbury County Genealogy Society, and his own Beauvais family newsletter for many years. He volunteered as a girls' basketball coach at the Salvation Army and with SYA for girls' fast-pitch softball. Tom compiled two family genealogy books and he wrote one book about his college internship with the San Francisco Big Brother program. He helped start the Big Brother Big Sisters in Sioux City and was named the Big Brother of the Decade in 1989. Tom enjoyed genealogy research, stamp collecting, playing cards and board games, and watching old westerns on TV. Tom married Rolene Stahl in 1982 in Sioux City, and they were blessed with one son, Brian. In lieu of flowers, the family suggests memorials to Big Brothers and Big Sisters, Woodbury County Genealogy Society, 
or First United Methodist Church. Beatrice Jerry Smith passed away peacefully surrounded by her family at the Haywarden Regional Hospital in Haywarden on January 18th at the age of 85. A memorial service will be held at Haywarden American Lutheran Church at a later date. The Porter Funeral Home in Haywarden is assisting the family. Bonnie Marie Jones, age 79, of Sioux City, passed away on January 7, 2024. She was born on January 22, 1944. Bonnie had a big heart and loved unconditionally. She was always up for any adventure, especially when it involved traveling with friends and family. Bonnie was known for her baking skills, and everyone looked forward to her treats. She cherished her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Bonnie is survived by her brother David, sister Barb, and her children Robin, Stacy, Jay, Betty, Jackie, Dave, and Tammy, along with their spouses or partners. She is also survived by 22 grandchildren and 26 great-grandchildren. Bonnie attended Central High School in Sioux City. She did not have any military service. In her career, Bonnie's details were not provided. She did not have any specific places of worship. In her free time, Bonnie loved all kinds of music and would sing along with local bands. She enjoyed traveling with loved ones and was always eager for new adventures. Most of all, Bonnie cherished spending time with her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. She also enjoyed occasional outings to try her luck on slot machines. At Bonnie's request, there will be no services held. In lieu of flowers or contributions, the family kindly requests that you remember Bonnie in your thoughts and prayers. Please note that the information provided is based solely on the details given and does not include any assumptions or guesses. Martin Tobin, 77, of Akron, passed away Thursday, January 18th, at his home in Akron, surrounded by his family. Funeral services will be at 1 p.m. on Tuesday, January 23rd at Rex Winkle Funeral Home in Akron. Chris Driver will officiate. Burial will follow at Riverside Cemetery in Akron. Visitation with the family present will be from noon until service time on Tuesday, January 23rd, and following the service during your reception, all at the funeral home. Arrangements are with Wex Winkle Funeral Home in Akron. Brian Jacob Corey Wellston, Oklahoma, 52, was called home by the Lord on June 5th. Funeral services will be at 2 p.m. Saturday, January 27th at St. Thomas Orthodox Church at 1100 Jones Street in Sioux City. Arrangements are with the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. And that <clears throat> that concludes obituaries for today. Uh, we'll now move to uh, on the article with the legislation. Uh, lawmakers take up restrictions on gender-neutral terms in class. Republicans on an Iowa House panel voted to move forward with a bill that would restrict instruction of gender-neutral language by world language teachers in class grades 9 through 12. House File 2060 would prohibit the introduction of gender-neutral terms in public and private school classes teaching a language that utilizes a grammatical gender system. 
A House subcommittee advanced the bill Monday with two votes in favor. Representative Bill Gustav, Democrat from Des Moines, said he proposed the bill after being contacted by two teachers who were being told to gender-neutralize how they teach foreign languages and that are, by nature, gender-infused. One of the teachers was facing disciplinary action, and the other was going to quit her job over the requirement, Gustav said. Some languages commonly taught in K-12 through schools, including Spanish and French, traditionally assign genders to nouns. For example, house, which in Spanish is la casa, is feminine, and car, or el auto, is masculine. Some nouns referring to people are assigned genders depending on the gender of the person. El hermano means brother, la hermana means sister. The bill was opposed by representatives of several state education associations and LGBTQ advocates. A Des Moines North High School teacher and linguist, Ty Nyhouse Nelson, told lawmakers that the non-binary Spanish pronoun L is among the many vocabulary words and structures taught in class. Students do their best when they can be themselves alongside their fellow community members and when each of them feels seen heard, and valued by others, Nelson said. Banning instruction that affirms students' identities as harmful, obfuscating the reality of the diverse world in which they live and that they will inherit is counterintuitive in preparing them to be future-ready. Keenan Crow of One Iowa, an LGBTQ advocacy organization, noted that legislation passed last year allows students to change their pronouns with parental permission. Now that we have this bill in place that requires trans and non-binary kids to get permission slips from their parents, their parents are effectively saying, this is how I want you to refer to my kid, and it doesn't get an exemption simply because of a foreign language class, Crow said. Oliver Bardwell of Iowans for Freedom spoke in favor of the bill, saying it's best to keep issues related to students' gender out of the classroom. Representative Heather Matson, Democrat from Ankeny, asked Gustav which school districts were ordering teachers to incorporate general neutral terms. He declined to identify the districts during the meeting. Madsen said she understood his reluctance to identify the districts in a public meeting, but if this is an actual problem that's happening, then we need to know where that is happening in order to have a real conversation about it. Because just saying, I'm hearing from teachers and saying this is what they're saying without being able to substantiate it, and filing legislation that, in my opinion, is legislative overreach, is really concerning to me. Representative Henry Stone, Republican from Four City, who supported advancing the bill, expressed concern that Iowa students would be learning a version of a world language that native speakers would not recognize. And I agree languages are evolving, but it's not up to a school district and the state of Iowa to tell the entire world that speaks French that you're done speaking certain endings of your words and a certain definite definite article, Stone said. The bill moves next to the House Education Committee for consideration. Lawmakers consider fire alarm response plans. Iowa lawmakers advanced a bill requiring school districts to include in their emergency response plans a policy that directs students and other school personnel how to respond to a fire alarm activated on school grounds. The bill, Senate File 2017, would allow schools to more easily address active shooter concerns when a fire alarm is triggered at a school, says the bill sponsor, Senator Chris Cornoy, Republican from 
Leclerc. She said it was inspired by the North Scott School District, which has implemented a policy for years that directs students and staff to first identify if there is an immediate threat, like the smell of smoke or sight of fire, if a fire alarm goes off unexpectedly at school. If there is no immediate threat, staff and students will wait for confirmation from safety officials before evacuating the building. The plan is in response to concerns that a shooter at a school could pull a fire alarm to draw students out of classrooms in order to more easily target students. North Scott High School Assistant Principal Aaron Schwartz said during a subcommittee meeting on Monday that the bill would make it easier for schools to implement this type of emergency response plan. When the school initially created the plan, Schwartz said, it received pushback from local fire marshals and had to seek state approval. He said the change in law would make districts feel more comfortable making the change. We'll now move to the sports section. We'll start with uh, Musketeers. Muskies top Tri-City twice in dramatic fashion. The Sioux City Musketeers tallied two drama-filled wins over the Tri-City Storm in USHL action on Friday and Saturday night at the Tyson Events Center in Sioux City. The Muskies beat the Storm in overtime on Friday 2-1 to one, and then were victorious on Saturday via 3-2 to two shootout. In Friday's game, Sioux City right winger Easton Jacobs scored an assist by Trey Jeffries and Kevin Fitzgerald, the team's lone goal during a regulation as each side tallied a second-period score. Forward Caden Shahan scored on an Owen Keefe assist for the winner in overtime nearly three minutes into the extra period. Samuel Urban got the win and goal for Sioux City as he stopped 24 of 25 Tri-City shot attempts. In the shootout win on Saturday, defenseman Finn Loftus scored five, five and a half minutes left in the first period to open the game scoring. He was assisted by Ty Hansen and Colin Kessler. After the storm tied it at one a minute later, Tri-City took a 2-1 lead with a score early in the second. Shahan then pulled the Muskies even with an unassisted goal 17 minutes, 12 seconds into the second. The sides went scoreless in the third and threw overtime um, before forward Brian Nichols notched the game winner in the shootout session. Urban was again the winning keeper as he made 16 saves on 18 shots faced. Though the Muskies are 14 points out of first place in the USHL's West Division behind leader Fargo, Sioux City maintained its spot in second place with the two wins and are ahead of third place Sioux Falls by five points. The Musketeers are 6-2-2-0 in their last 10 games and have scored 132 goals as team this season against 119 goals allowed. We'll now move to um, high school wrestling. A look at the top five boys and girls wrestling individuals and teams over the past week, beginning with Jackson Boonstra of Dakota Valley. The junior won a Dakota 12 conference title at 144 pounds on Saturday to move to 21-3 for the season. Boonstra needed just four total minutes of mat time to claim the title at 144. After getting a first round bye, he tallied two pins in the quarterfinal and semifinal rounds before receiving a medical forfeit in the finals. Boonstra also got a forfeit win and, a, and scored a 19-4 technical fall in under three minutes over Madison's Chase Stewart during a triangular last week. Ryland DeGroote, Western Christian. DeGroote f- finished in third place against a tough field at the Herb 
Ergens Invitational at OABCIG. However, DeGroote's opening round pin scored the senior his 100th career win. His season includes a runner-up finish at the Dan Pash Invitational and a third-place finish at the Dan Miller Invitational. Michael Block of Siblio Shaden. Ranked fourth in Class 1A, the senior Block was the top heavyweight at the OABCIG hosted Herb Ergen's Invitational on Saturday. He moved to 37-1 on the season by scoring a narrow 8-7 decision over Jacques Zormermund of Sioux Center for Saturday's championship. Block went 5-0 last week with three pins and two decision wins. Jackson Kinnitz, Bishop Helan. Kinnitz topped the field at the 144-pound weight class at the Bishop Helan Invitational on Saturday. He's 21-6 on the season and won the weekend's title bout over Esterville Lincoln Central's Leighton Yeager by 12-11 decision. He reached the finals by going for three consecutive pins, including a last-second fall of, of Norfolk's Josiah Cum in the semifinals. Kinnitz also matched two pinfalls during a triangular against MMCRU and Woodbury Central last week. At their home meet on Saturday, the Crusaders also got a winner as Sir Brandon Watts won the 157-pound weight class. Jesse Lewis, West Sioux. The top-ranked wrestler at 126 pounds in Class 1A, Lewis continued his undefeated season with a win at 126. He's now 27-0 on the season and has now tallied bonus point wins in each of his last 16 matches. Lewis scored pins in each of the first two rounds of the tournament and then went for a technical fall and major decision over the final two rounds. He beat Aiden Wells of Sioux Falls Jefferson in the finals at Helan. Cato Shrunk, Pender. The 215-pound weight class shrunk won the championship at the Oakland Craig, Nebraska Invitational over the weekend. He received a first-round forfeit and then went on for two pins en route to claiming his title. A freshman, shrunk, also scored three wins on Friday with two decisions and a pin at the Madison Invitational. Now for the girls. Olivia Huckfeldt-Spencer, a 235-pound top-ranked senior, Huckfeld won the Mason City Invitational to keep her perfect record for the season intact as she's 37-0 after a first-period pin of Waverly Shell Rocks Madison uh, Henricks in the championship match. Every one of Huckfeld's matches this season have been decided by pinfall, forfeit, or tournament by. Only one of her matches has seen the second round. And then we move to the top teams. It's Sergeant Bluff Luton. The Warriors ended as a tournament runner-up at the Herb Ergens Invitational. And westward, the Rebels took first place at a, as a team at the Oakland Craig Invitational on Saturday with 234 points. And then Western Iowa Girls. Western Iowa won the Oakland Craig Nebraska Invitational on Saturday with a meet-best 105 team points. We'll now go to Dear Abby. Dear Abby. My stepdaughter Zoe has recently had her first baby and we are very excited. She lives far away. My husband Carl is taking the trip, but I have to stay because my elderly mother is living with us. I asked family to stay with mom, but they're involved in their busy lives and mom clings to me. When I called to congratulate other relatives on becoming new aunts, etc., none of them reciprocated. Later, one of them reluctantly said they were told I was not the grandmother, even if Zoe's biological mother has passed away, nor would I ever be. 
This is bittersweet. I do not want to replace anyone. I have been hoping for a grandchild for a long time. I have been with Carl for more than 20 years. I'm crushed. No pictures are being sent to me, though when I was planning Zoe's wedding from soup to nuts, we were in constant contact and I thought we were growing closer. I guess not. How do I navigate this? My mother-in-law is barely speaking to me since I can't join the trip to see the baby and has become very snotty. Must I just admire from afar like a bystander, pretending to care? Signed, cast aside in New York. And Abby responds, I wish you had mentioned which family member was telling you, telling the others you're not to be considered that baby's grandmother. Could it have been Zoe's mother? If that's the case, there appears to be more than a little jealousy on her part and a blatant attempt to isolate you. You are the so child's step-grandmother, and the photos should be shared with you. I hope Carl will impress this upon his daughter, as well as let her know how hurt you have been by the treatment you have been receiving. What happened was unjustified. The more love in this world, the better, and labels should be used to include rather than isolate. Dear Abby, my friend often complains that she and her husband don't have any other friends and she doesn't know why. I know why, but I'm not sure if I should say anything. Her husband is nice, but he's a long-winded talker who takes over every conversation, bragging about himself and the people he knows. I believe he does this to impress people, but it actually repels them. He does this every time, and I have witnessed guys walk away and keep their distance from him. This includes my husband. She wants my husband to get closer to him, but my husband can't stand him because of this. So, should I be honest and tell her what the deal is? I don't want to hurt her feelings, or must I keep pretending I don't know why? Sign knows why in New Jersey. And Abby responds, I think you would be doing the woman a favor by telling her something like this. I can't arm twist my husband into a closer relationship with yours than they already have. If you would like to know why, I will tell you. If she says yes, explain that you like her very much, but her husband's much needed to dominate the conversation and brag about his accomplishments, net worth, etc., uh, drives people away. And that does it for today's record reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, January 23rd. I'm your reader, Dagna. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. A decade ago, there were typically 20 earthquakes a year that were large enough to feel in the central and eastern U.S. But in 2015, there were over 1,000 of them. Why? It's mostly because we're pumping more water into the ground. The boom in U.S. oil and gas production over the last decade has brought many more oil wells, which also produce water. Most is naturally occurring in the formation, and some was injected by operators to allow or improve the recovery of oil and gas. In both cases, the water will likely have picked up salt and other minerals from the rock, making it many times saltier than seawater. Operators may re-inject this water to continue to liberate oil and gas, but more often, there's too much to handle. So it's trucked or piped to disposal wells where it's pumped down into deep saltwater reservoirs. Adding large volumes of wastewater increases the pressure in these rock formations, which can allow natural faults to slip more easily than they normally would, causing earthquakes. To address these quakes, regulators and the petroleum industry are monitoring disposal wells and shutting down those that could cause damaging seismic activity. And they now think that managing wastewater injection more carefully should help. There's still more work to be done, and university research centers, like the Bureau of Economic Geology, are conducting major studies with the aim of minimizing the risk of earthquakes while maintaining the benefits of domestic energy production. For EarthDate, I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.